Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi. And I'm Jill Wine-Banks. And today's Jill's pin is actually my college sorority Greek pin. And that's because our guest today quotes so many Greek philosophers <laughs> that I had to find something Greek to wear. Yes. Well, in this polarized world, it is crucial to know how to debate and persuade people with opposing views, whether you're a student, a lawyer, a parent looking to have a more effective, robust conversation with someone with opposing views. uh, Today's conversation is for you. Our guest today not only is an MSNBC anchor who does not hold back on sharing his opinions and pushing back, but he also has a must-read new book called How to Win Every Argument. And for everyone who's watching this, you will, of course, have recognized that our guest is Mehdi Hassan. He's the host of the Mehdi Hassan show on Peacock and MSNBC, where I've been privileged to be a guest. Before MSNBC, Mehdi worked at Al Jazeera, The Intercept, and The Huffington Post. And he's back for the second time on our show because he was wonderful the first time. And we are really looking forward to talking to him about politics and his book. Thanks very much for being with us, Mehdi. Thank you both for having me. And both of you have been on my show, so I've yes. been very lucky to have you both as guests. That's awesome. So let's start. Um, before we get to your book, given that we're reporting this live less than 24 hours before the arraignment of President Trump, and I, I want to talk a little bit about what's going to happen, assuming he shows up as planned, which, of course, we now know because he's already flown to New York. Um, but we wanna ask you about the indictment. Uh, It, like the conduct that spawned the indictment is truly unprecedented in American history. Although it wouldn't have been if I had been successful in persuading Leon Jaworski, the special prosecutor of Watergate to indict Richard Nixon, um, which unfortunately didn't happen, but we have had indictments of a, a vice president and of many governors. I mean, there's almost a special wing in Illinois for former governors. Um, And so it's not unprecedented here or in other democracies. And uh, what does the indictment say about where we are as a nation? It says we're catching up with the rest of the world, because as you point out, the fact that we've never indicted a former leader is not a good thing. I don't know why people think it's a good thing to be proud of. The New York Times seemed to suggest it was some, we've crossed some bad line here. It's no, it's not. American exceptionalism uh, can be a good thing and it can be a bad thing. And there's many areas in which American exceptionalism is a bad thing. Guns. We're exceptional on guns. Yes. It's not a good thing. Yeah. Healthcare. We're exceptional on healthcare. It's not a good thing. And holding leaders to account, we're exceptional in not doing it. And that's a bad thing. I think Axios did a study. 78 countries since the year 2000 have uh, prosecuted a former president or prime minister. 78. Wow. Uh, Israel right now has a prime minister in the middle of a corruption trial. Yeah. Uh, Taiwan, South Korea, France, uh, Italy uh, have all prosecuted former presidents or prime ministers. So this idea that we've crossed some Rubicon, we've done something unprecedented, uh, not when you take a step back and take a global look at this. So and you and also even within the American tradition, as you point out, Jill, the idea that, you know, former presidents can't be indicted. That's just not true because the whole reason Gerald Ford pardoned Richard Nixon is to avoid him from being indicted. I mean, he wouldn't have had to indict it. He wouldn't have had to pardon him if that wasn't a risk. And we know Bill Clinton. Uh, during his legal troubles, uh, him and his team were wary of being indicted. Excellent points all. And yet the Republicans are pushing back. They're calling D.A. Bragg uh, name, they're saying. And 
is Trump's and William Barr has said this is an atrocious thing that he's being indicted um, and, and made a fallacious statement about why he was saying that. He said it was because if it wasn't for it being Trump, no one else would be indicted for this crime. And yet there are at least 20 uh, convictions on this particular crime, assuming without knowing because yeah. we haven't seen the indictment, but assuming that it is what we think it is, there have been at least 20 cases recently in New York. So um, how do you deal with the Republican pushback? I would take the Republic, I think the Bill Barr line, a lot of people have used this line, that if Donald Trump's name was John Smith, this would not be happening right now. Right. And I would turn that on its head and say the exact opposite. Yeah. If Donald Trump's name was John Smith, he would have been prosecuted long ago. Yeah. The reality is he's gotten away with this for so long because he's Donald J. Trump. On my show on Sunday night, I went through the history. 50 years ago, 50 years ago, October 1973, we first learned of a man named Donald J. Trump when he appears on the front of the New York Times with his father. Both of them are landlords in New York, and they're accused by the Nixon Justice Department of violating the Fair Housing Act by denying black people apartments in their buildings. Trump was too racist for the Nixon Justice Department. Right. He gets away with it. He settles out of court. Him and his father, they move on for 50 years. He carries on getting caught up in court cases, lawsuits, three and a half thousand lawsuits. Trump's or Trump organization's name appears in, according to USA Today by 2016. And he keeps getting away with it. He comes into office. He violates the emoluments clause. Ten cases of obstruction of justice outlined by Robert Mueller. No one prosecutes him. Not his own department because it's a yeah. stupid memo that says you can't indict a sitting president, which Biden still hasn't got rid of. I don't know why. And then he leaves office and Merrick Garland comes in and allows the obstruction of justice cases to um, time out, uh, doesn't take any action on anything else, and now outsources it to a special counsel. Even that, would, you, would he have outsourced it to a special counsel if his name was John Smith? No, he only outsourced it to a special counsel because his name's Donald Trump. So I would right. argue the exact reverse of Bill Barr. He's gotten away with it because he's Donald Trump, because he's a former president, not because he's an ordinary citizen. An ordinary citizen, if you and I had rung Brad Raffensperger and said <laughs> 11,000 votes, we would have been in prison long ago, long wow. ago, not two and up two years, three months later, still waiting for a funny Willis indictment. Like you said, I mean, this is really just American exceptionalism, but hopefully this is a sign of uh, what's to come in terms of accountability. But I want to ask you something, which is kind of where we see Trump supporters right now. So I was um, in New York City last week. I was standing outside the Manhattan courthouse on both Thursday and Friday when the news dropped. And there was absolutely no Trump supporter there. Um, that could change tomorrow, I guess, when Trump comes uh, into New York for his arraignment. But it seems like there aren't many people showing up to protest. Do you find that comforting or should we still be concerned because um i guess he's still been able to raise a lot a lot of money from this oh, yeah. no no we should always be concerned never underestimate yeah. donald trump that's one lesson we've learned uh, over the last nearly decade especially when it comes to the incitement of violence i mean were you surprised when alvin bragg got a letter with white powder on it threatening uh. death i wasn't surprised i mean i was shocked and we should all still retain our capacity for shock and disgust but i wasn't surprised because that is the natural consequence of trump's violent rhetoric of his incitement he knows what he's doing he knows under he perfectly he might not know the name but he understands the concept of stochastic terrorism uh, of winding people up and allowing them to go do things that he can then deny he has anything yeah. to do with. i mean the danger from trump uh, is only just beginning in many ways we are we are a year and a half out from a presidential election if you think trump's going to go quietly you haven't been paying attention to the last eight years don't forget victor in 2019 i wrote a piece for the intercept in i think march or april around this time similar similar times like 18 months before the 2020 election yeah, almost exactly four years ago, I wrote a piece saying, wow. if Trump loses, he will not go quietly. Oh. He will cause a riot. He will bring a mob. Uh, 
and he won't accept the result. And people said to me, you're being hysterical. Don't be silly. The Secret Service will march him out. He's just, a, you know, don't give him that credibility. And then what happens? January the 6th yeah. happens. The big lie happens. The coup happens. And I hate to say I told you so, but I told you so. And I'm saying it again. He's not going to go quietly. This guy is not going to accept the result of a court. He's not going to accept the result of an election. And he has a bunch of cultish, heavily armed and weirdly loyal followers. Um, you know, this is a man who on Truth Social just a few weeks ago, retruthed, if that's what you call it, a follower of his saying, locked and loaded, right? Again, yeah. a decade ago, that would have disqualified you from public office to do something right. like that. Trump, we just shrug and say, yeah, that's the latest bit of incitement. Yeah, and we have congressmen with Christmas cards with them having assault rifles. So we're a long way from what this country used to be. How do you think the media should be covering all this? What's your approach to covering this unique moment and the political divide? So a couple of things I would say. Number one, um, center it on the facts, not on the narratives that different interested political parties want to push. So for example, a lot of the narrative last week was, oh, well, this indictment is weak, uh, or this indictment is unprecedented, or this indictment is political. And the simple response from any journalist should be, have you seen the indictment? What indictment? Why don't we wait for the indictment? No. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we, Greg Sargent of the Washington Post made this point very well the other day, which is don't center Republican narratives uh, about this indictment. Number one, they are partisan, as are Democratic Party narratives. Uh, number, to be fair, the president has not said anything. Number two, uh, we know the Republicans operate in bad faith. That's just not debatable or disputable. Yeah. Uh, and number three, uh, take a step back and look at the big picture. This isn't just about an indictment in Manhattan. This is about a lawless autocrat who has spent 50 years dodging criminal accountability, dodging legal accountability, uh, who's now being held to account for the first time, and his reaction is to t burn it all down. And again, I think the media needs to stop grading Trump on a curve. I've said this for seven, eight years, and we're still doing it. So, for example, when Trump threatens Alvin Bragg, that should be your lead story. That shouldn't be something we shrug and say as an aside, oh, by the way, he threatened Bragg because that's what he does. We shouldn't become numb to his extremism, his autocracy, his incitement of violence, his fascistic tendencies. We should call it what it is. This is authoritarianism. This is fascism. This is domestic terrorism. Let's not be afraid to call it what it is. For far too long, journalists have shied away from the obvious adjectives and verbs that we should be, and nouns that we should be using. I have a hashtag on Twitter called hashtag say this, not that, because I agree with you. We should be calling lies, lies, yeah. not anything else. Yeah. They're not misstatements. They're, not, they're lies. And but, it, but, but let's stop grading on a curve. You know, people get annoyed when I say, imagine if Obama did this. Imagine if Ilhan Omar did this. And people get, oh, you always do that, that same device. The reason I do that device is because it's the only way to remind people what a bizarro, upside down, topsy-turvy, one-sided world we live in. We would never tolerate this behavior yeah. from any other yeah. candidate. Let me give you an example of how Trump gets a pass that no one else gets, not even other Republicans. Ron DeSantis recently came out and said, oh, I think Ukraine is a border dispute, a territorial dispute. I think, you know, it's not a big issue for me. I wouldn't send weapons. People lose their minds to the point whereby DeSantis has to come out and clarify with Piers Morgan, no, 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 Putin's a war criminal, et cetera, et cetera. Trump never has to do that. Trump has said yeah. much worse than DeSantis yeah. on Ukraine, but he feels under no pressure to come out and correct it. And no one tries to correct him because we do this kind of weird Trump path. Oh, that's Donald Trump. That's what he does. We shouldn't fall into that trap. Yeah. My position is every time he does something outrageous, we should be outraged, not because we, you know, we're allowing him to kind of troll us, but because if we lose that capacity to be outraged, we normalize right. his nonsense. 
Right. And that word normalization is so important because so, we have normalized so many you're things. The day after 60 minutes. Yes, exactly. And we, well, we want to ask you about that. Yeah. Um, so I mean, you had a tweet yesterday that uh, last or maybe it was this morning, but last night you said I have been uh, doing this month long book tour, pu pushing the importance of tougher interviews and the need for follow up questions. I had a piece in the Atlantic about how to deal with gish galloping by bad faith interviewees. And then Leslie Stahl goes and does that interview with Marjorie Taylor Greene. And you say kill period me period now period. Um, talk about that interview and, and, and related to your book about about how interviewers should be having on people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and other right-wing extremists. So my position is, and I've said this during the book tour, that I wouldn't have Marjorie Taylor Greene on my show. And I wouldn't have her on my show because she's a bad faith actor. She's a kind of internet troll come to life uh, in Congress. Uh, she pushes racism, conspiracies, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia. I don't want to give a platform to fascists. I don't believe there's a value in doing that. And the only value goes to the guest who gets legitimized, normalized, mainstreamed. So I don't believe, I love a good argument. I wrote a book about arguing, but I believe in good faith argument, good faith disagreement, not bad faith, not with bad faith actors and people who are pretending, uh, who lie with every breath. So Marjorie Taylor Greene is not someone I would interview, number one. Number two, if you are going to interview Marjorie Taylor Greene, then at least do the three things I say in my book in the chapter on gish galloping on people like Greene and Trump who try and overwhelm you with BS and nonsense and lies and conspiracies, don't give you a chance to fact check them in real time, at least do three things. Pick your battle, pick a subject that you want to get into, call out what's going on, say, look, what you're doing is, is lying, is BSing. And number three, don't just budge. Don't budge. Don't just uh, move on to the next question. And sadly, Leslie Stahl failed on every, on every front. She spends 15 minutes of 60 minutes with Marjorie Taylor Greene last night and she doesn't have one single topic or issue that she wants to drill into. It's all over the place. It's everything, which is of benefit to Green. The interview benefits when you do that. She doesn't call out what Green does, that what you do as a whole is one big lie. Right? She doesn't identify. Uh, she gives her the benefit of the doubt. And number three, she budges. When Green says the Democrats are a party of pedophiles, an outrageous and dangerous claim, Leslie Stahl says, Wow. And then moves on. She says at one point, let me button this up and then I'll move on. Why are you buttoning it up? No, no. Keep asking. Keep pushing. If you're going to have her on, which I wouldn't, then at least push her on her anti-Semitism, on her, on her hanging out with Holocaust deniers. So many issues which weren't touched. And then number three, the third thing I say is this. Somebody made a good point on social media when I said, you know, I wish she had read my book. And they said, you're assuming the interviewers like this don't know how to do it. It's that they don't want to do it. And I think that's an important point here. Yeah. Whether you have the skill set or not, which some do and some don't, the first point is that you, you've really got to ask of, do you want to hold this person to account? Too many journalists don't want to do that. Whether it's access journalism and worried about people not coming back, or in Leslie Stahl's case, she doesn't have to worry about access. She's Leslie Stahl. I don't think it's access, but I do think it's 60 Minutes saying, we don't want to upset our Republican viewers. We want to look balanced and fair and neutral. We want to look for both sides. You remember that CBS hired Mick Mulvaney to be a paid yeah. contributor because they want to look like they're appeasing to Republicans. And I get it. I work for a news organization for NBC News that also sees itself as impartial. Uh, the parent, you know, I'm MSNBC, an opinion journalist, but there's NBC News, which wants to see itself as, you know, balanced and fair. And I get it. You want to be fair. You want to be balanced. But, you know, when you live in a country where millions of people believe in conspiracy theories, where one of our two main parties has gone over the conspiracy cliff, you've got to be careful about just saying, well, I'm going to sit in the middle and say both sides. 
In fact, at one point, Leslie Stahl does say both sides, and I wanted to tear my hair out. So I, I, I had a slightly different reaction, and I'm going to rewatch it with the perspective you've offered. But I did see her pushing back, Leslie Stahl pushing back on Marjorie Taylor Greene. I even point. saw her. One I, point. And, and she rolled her eyes, which I thought was, you know, something I know that I have done it myself when I'm, you know, on air and somebody puts a clip up that is so outrageous, I roll my eyes. But um, on the other hand, I don't think Marjorie Taylor Greene looked as bad. And she did have a platform. She's working out. Yeah. She's yeah. hugging her constituents in the street. She's yeah. popular. Yeah. Yeah. She's, a, she's, a, she's a family woman. I mean, yeah. let me just, on the pushback, let me just push that. She did ask her about um, the, the, the social media stuff. And the pedophile. But, but on the, well, on the pedophiles, I don't think she pushed back. She said, why do you have to say it with name calling? No, 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 no. That's not your response no. to pedophiles. Your response to pedophiles is to say, number one, what on earth are you talking about? This is QAnon. There's no BS. fact to support that yeah. at Number all. two, this is dangerous incitement of violence. And number three, have you ever heard of a guy called Dennis Haster, the former Republican House Speaker? Of course, yes. Child sex abuse. But look, He's from she, Illinois. But let me just give you two exchanges which stood out to me, which is where I would say I want to tear my hair out. Number one, she says, when she pushes her on her social media stuff, what does Green do? Green starts gish galloping. She starts talking over Leslie Stahl and says, are you going to go back to my kindergarten? Are you going to pull up my speeding tickets? And immediately turns the conversation away from the valid discussion. Leslie is yeah. not able to bring it back to discussion. It ends on uh, a very defensive rant from Marjorie Taylor Greene. Later on, when she says, you want to bring in a Christian government? Very good question from Stahl. She says, the separation of church and state, First Amendment. And then Green says, but our founding fathers loved God. And we move on. She gets the last word, factually inaccurate. That's just not true, that the founding fathers were intent on having Christianity at the basis and that they were all good Christians, just not true. So this is my problem with doing it in this way. If you're going to do it, if you are going to do an interview with Marjorie Taylor make it about one issue. Don't cut away to kind of voice of God narratives. Have your follow-up questions ready. Yeah. Be prepared. And don't let the interviewee talk all over your steamroll you. So let's talk about your, your book a little bit more. Um, it's a really amazing book, and it seems right up your alley, given your uh, style on MSNBC and also just in general. First, why did you decide to write the book now? So, I mean, uh, there's the trivial reason and there's the big reason. The trivial reason is there was a pandemic going on, and I was trying to think, how do I pass the time? Uh, <laughs> and uh, I, I started thinking about a lot of people saying to me, hey, you do all these interviews, you do all these debates. Is that stuff you can teach? And one of the premises for the book is, yes, you can teach. I 100% believe that the stuff that I do, that those of us in public life, on camera, uh, on stage, that we do can be taught, can be learned, can be developed. You don't just come out of the womb a natural-born debater or public speaker. People think there's a phrase, natural-born orator. It's not a phrase I like because it implies only certain people can do it. And it's just not true. Number two, the big, big picture of why I wrote it and the timing, why it worked out so well, for all the wrong reasons, depressingly, is that we live in an age where people like Marjorie Taylor Greene are polluting our public square, are degrading our public discourse. We are surrounded by gaslighters and serial fabricators and serial liars and authoritarians and big lies. And too many small D Democrats are not equipped with the rhetorical skills to push back to protect our democracy, to protect free speech, to protect our media. Too many people on my side of the argument have the facts and the figures and think that's enough. Well, I've got truth on my side. That's not enough, sadly. Just having the facts and figures is not enough. How do you deploy them? How do you convince a skeptical audience? How do you persuade people? How do you defend yourself against BS merchants and con men? 
And I think that's why I wrote the book to say, well, here's how you do it. It's a very practical book. It's a how-to book very much. And, and you make a big point of it's not just facts. You have to also look at the emotional side yes. of it. Yes, liberals I, don't get often. Talk about yeah. that more. That's so interesting. I, I, one, of the, one of the problems is that whether you're in the UK and you're the Labour Party or you're in the United States, you're in the Democratic Party, wherever you are in the Western world, the centre-left for far too long has been uh, very bureaucratic, very managerial. It's all about mm. policies um, and, you know, uh, cost... You know, have you got a costed plan for your budget and your proposal? And, uh, you know, trying to win people over with uh, kitchen table issues, you often hear Democrats say. And people yeah. don't operate like that. Human beings don't go and vote based on policy or based on a long laundry list of what a party is going to. Nobody goes in a ballot box and says, you know what? I can't decide who to vote for. Well, actually, the Democratic Party um, corporate tax policy. Yeah, that, I'm going to vote for that. But that's just not how human beings work. We work based on our gut reactions, our instincts, our emotions, who appeals to us, who repels us. And Republicans have worked out, right-wingers across the world have worked out in a very dark way how to deploy our worst emotions against us, how to rile up people uh, with prejudice, with fear, with paranoia. And I don't think progressives or leftists or liberals have quite worked out how to do the same in reverse, how to inspire people, how to get people energized, how to use anger in the right way. There's nothing wrong with anger. You know, Republicans use people's anger and deploy it against the immigrant, against the Mexican, against the Muslim, against the transgender kid. I'm saying people are angry for all sorts of reasons, good and bad. We also need to be able to tap into that anger in the way that, for example, Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders and direct it towards the big farmer or the big banks who are screwing you. But you've got to get where people are. People are angry. People are fearful. People are hopeful. How do you appeal to their emotions? How do you win people over through their heart and not just through their heads? And for too long, Democrats, especially kind of the legal mind, a lot of lawyers on the left, just want to have a kind of lawyerly argument where you deploy lots of facts and figures and assume that a rational person will just come on board. And we're not just all rational creatures. We're emotional creatures. So we still have a lot of questions and we're running out of time. Do you think, do we have to cut it off? No, no, we can do another five, 10 minutes. Okay. All right. Cool. Then a, a couple quick questions before we get to some other more meaty ones. But one, I, I because I'm wearing my Iota Alpha Pi Phi chapter pin, um, <laughs> I have to ask, I mean, you quote Cicero and Aristotle, Greeks and Romans, uh, 428 BCE. And I, I, it made me wonder why, why did you go back? to those people. I mean, most of the people in the oh. audience are not who are reading it yeah. aren't going to know those people. I think three reasons. Number one, um, I wanted to show people that the basis for my argument that you can learn this stuff is not new. It's not Mehdi Hassan yeah. in 2023 saying, hey guys, there's a single rhetoric and you can learn it. No, this goes back yeah. thousands of years. Over 2,000 years ago, Aristotle is telling us, hey, Pathos matters as much as logos, if not more. Emotion matters as much as yeah. facts and logic. So I wanted to establish that there is historical precedent. There's people who have been saying this uh, for centuries. Uh, number two, um, there is just some great storytelling to be done. And I tell some stories about some of these uh, characters uh, in the book. Um, and I, as I say in the book, the best way to win people over is through stories. Uh, and so I thought some of the stories were fascinating from that period of time. And then number three, linked to that, some of those people I talk about are case studies for my premise that you can learn this stuff. So Demosthenes yeah. is an ancient Greek uh, rhetorician, speech writer, uh, regarded as one of the fathers of modern rhetoric, kind of the, the, the ultimate badass that people look at him and say, wow, 
you know, the French resistance side of Demosthenes, the US founding fathers side of Demosthenes, the Roman side of Demosthenes. And yet when you go and look at Demosthenes' life, the guy couldn't speak. In his 20s, he goes to court to try and sue his relatives for stealing his inheritance, and he loses. He's not a good speaker. So what does he do? He goes, he builds himself an underground cavern, a kind of Batman-style lair, and he goes down there for six months. He shaves off half of his head, so he'll be too embarrassed to come outside. And he spends six months in this cave practicing how to speak. He puts pebbles in his mouth to deal with his stutter. He stands in front of a mirror to deal with his posture and facial expressions. He does all the things that all speech coaches tell people to do today. Demosthenes is doing it thousands of years ago in ancient Greece, and he's doing it in a way that suddenly turns him into a person that we all revere as the father of rhetoric. And I'm saying to people, if Demosthenes can do it, you can do it. Can do it. Yeah. So you, you mentioned the Democratic Party and, and the kind of flaws that we have in terms of reaching people and, and, and our messaging. I'm wondering if you can identify any rising stars or effective communicators in the party. And if so, what makes them so effective? And what should Democrats be doing better to be more like those people? So the obvious answer, and we won't spend much time on it because it's so obvious, is AOC is probably the master communicator of our age both on social media, yeah. uh, where she wins every social media uh, throwdown she gets into, but also as an orator, if you watched her speech on the House floor the day Ilhan Omar was removed from the Foreign Affairs Committee, it is a, uh, a wonderful piece of oratory. I urge your viewers and listeners to go pull it out. She speaks really from the heart uh, in that moment on behalf of Muslims and minorities. It's a very powerful speech. So AOC is someone I think does it well. She's very eloquent. Uh, she knows she, what she gets right is she gets the big picture, the Socratic Greek rhetoric bit, but she also gets the social media savvy and humor. And I have a chapter in the book on the importance of humor, and she gets the importance yes. of uh, humor and zingers. Um, but, you know, other people I, you know, I just did a segment on my show last night on Jamal Bowman standing in the hallway of Congress yes, yes. and shouting wow. about guns. Yeah. People say, oh, you shouldn't shout. And I say in the book, actually, it's not true. Sometimes I say in the book, sometimes you need a bit of moral outrage. You need a bit of righteous fury. You need a bit of how dare you, sir? Because that's what yeah. gets through to people. And for too long, Democrats have treated gun control like they treat any other issue. It's a, it's a logical problem to be solved somehow with legislation. Great. But where's the heart? Where's the passion? Kids are being gunned down. Why am I not seeing that anger? And what's interesting about that clip where Jamal Bowman and Thomas Massey are going at it in the hallway, it's not just Thomas Massey who patronizingly condescendingly says, calm down to this black former school teacher. Yeah. But yeah. Steny Hoyer former majority whip, yeah. establishment Democrat, walks over and holds on to Bowman's arm as if to stop him. And I'm thinking, no, what Bowman's doing is right. What Hoyer has done for years is wrong. I'm sorry, but the establishment Democratic Party for far too long have lacked uh, heart, lacked fury, lacked emotion. And actually, Jamal Bowman is doing the right thing and making it very, very personal. And he's on the left. I would say somebody who's in the center of the party, if we can use these phrases, Eric Swalwell of California, mm -hmm. I think, has been uh, very clever in some of the ads he's put out. I don't know if you've seen mm -hmm. some of his recent yes. ads on the yeah. insurrection, on the Republican, on abortion. He's put out some very, very uh, powerful, provocative ads, an abortion ad in which a woman is being arrested, which was mocked at the time, but we've now seen in South Carolina, a woman has allegedly been arrested yeah. for using an abortion pill. Yeah. Uh, he yeah. did a fantastic ad on the insurrection and the importance of democracy back when people were saying, oh, you can't message around democracy in the midterm. Stick to kitchen table issues. Don't talk about democracy. Swallow show that you can do a powerful ad on democracy. So yes. I do think there are some rising voices who get yeah. it, who get the importance of what do they all have in common? Speak bluntly. Say this, not that. Not that. Yeah, exactly.
So we, we can't get to every tip that you offer in the book, but using your own rule of three from the book, what are your three favorite tips for uh, winning any argument uh, in the book? And is there one you think that it's most applicable to the political world we live in now? Um, so yeah, I would just, so we dealt with, um, we dealt with uh, emotion, right? Yeah. So we'll pop that. I think that's a big one, but we've already discussed it. Let's pick three others. And three you said humor. Three hours. So, so I was going to say humor. Okay, so we're taking humor out. So you're limited. But I've got 16 chapters. That's all right. We'll take humor <laughs> and emotion out. Uh, so I would say, um, let's not sleep. Number one, let's not sleep on facts. People think because I talk so much about emotion, I don't care about facts. Not true. I have a chapter called Show Your Receipts. I'm actually well known yeah. as an interviewer, as the person who always has receipts says, well, you said this. Yeah. What about yeah. this? On this day, you said that. So I think it's very important if you're going to win an argument that you're well prepared, that you have your receipts ready to go. Too often we go into an argument, we, don't have, we haven't done the research and homework. Uh, number two, I think, to come back to what I mentioned about AOC, the zinger, right? We live in a very social media age with short attention spans. If you're going to win an argument, you need a good one-liner. The mic drop, the zinger, the, uh, you know, I knew Jack Kennedy. You all know Jack Kennedy, the famous uh, VP line uh, uh, to Dan Quayle. Uh, you know, those, what is your one liner that you're going to have that is going to really, really win it over? Because people aren't going to remember everything else you said, but they might remember that one line. Uh, and number three, a chapter that was a difficult one for me to write because I'm not good at it, but it's super important, which is listening. Right? Too often in debates and arguments, yeah. Yeah. we don't listen to what the other person is saying. We think we're listening, but really we're waiting for our turn to speak. And I talk a lot about in the book that just from a critical point of view, you need to have listened to what's been said because you can't rebut it if you haven't been paying attention. And from an empathetic point of view, if you want to win people over, make new friends, convince an audience, you need to show them that you understand where they're coming from, that you, you can walk a mile in their shoes. So critical listening and empathetic listening, number three, listening is very important. Absolutely. And it's hearing what the other person said, not just listening. And I guess that's your empathetic. Um, you do also talk about using ad hominem attacks. Um, and talk about that, because that's something that is generally- Yeah, so people hear that and they think, what, Medi's advocating for just calling people names? That's not what I'm doing. I do talk in that chapter about how Donald Trump did vanquish 16 Republican rivals in 2016 by giving them pretty insulting and uh, yeah. offensive nicknames. And while we say to ourselves, oh, you know, we, we have to take the moral high ground, so, oh, Donald Trump, look at him making these childish nicknames. The problem is they work. Right, it did. Jeb Bush did get defined as low energy. Marco Rubio was little Marco. Jeb, uh, you know, Ted Cruz was lying Ted. Uh, they fit, um, and he's very good at doing that. And I'm not saying you should do that per se. But what I'm saying is that when you attack the person making the argument and not just the argument, it has an effect in the real world. I know we don't want to admit it to ourselves. It feels icky. That's not something you should do. Play the ball, not the man, is the phrase. That's the name of the chapter. My chapter is called "Play the Ball and the Man." Right, because actually in the real world, people don't evaluate arguments in abstract yeah. and say, hmm, hmm, I support A, not B. No, they also say, who's pushing A and who's yeah. pushing B? Do I trust yeah. A, yeah. the person behind A, or do I trust the person behind B? So what I say in the book is, you know, Aristotle said there was pathos, there was logos, there was also ethos. The personality, the credibility of the person making the argument matters. When you decide whether you agree with something, you also see whether you agree with the person making the argument. So if you're arguing with someone, don't be afraid to go ad hominem. What do I mean by that? I say the abusive ad hominem, which sounds bad, but it just means if somebody has a history of lying, it's your job to tell the audience, maybe don't trust that person. They lie a lot. Number two, if somebody has a conflict of interest, a circumstantial ad hominem, why would you trust a guy saying climate change isn't real? Isn't real. He's paid for by the fossil fuel industry. You should make that point. And number three, 
uh, the two quo quo, the hypocrisy argument. Hey, that Republican says abortion should be banned, but he paid for his mistress to have an abortion in secret. How is that a credible argument when he can't even stick by his own arguments? Now, in purely logical terms, people will say those are logical fallacies. They're not relevant to the argument at hand, what the person behind them does. But in the real world of rhetoric, they matter. And I'm saying, I want to live in the real world. My book is a very practical book. So I'm saying in the real world, you need to challenge the ball and the player. And yet all of those are very different than the nicknames that yes. Trump gave but, but, to but, people. But what is interesting is, too often Democrats in particular, again, you know, Michelle Obama, you know, I, I admire Michelle Obama for many reasons. But when she said, when they go low, we go high. No, that was a mistake. That doesn't work. In our current climate, it does not work. You need to be a bit more aggressive and combative when you're taking on people who want to destroy democracy. So now I think I should have worn my boxing uh, donkey and elephant <laughs> pin instead of my Greek pin. But um, that, hey, that's... By the way, the ancients were very good at ad hominem. Cicero, the yeah, greatest yeah. orator of Roman antiquity times, was famed for his personal attacks. Yeah. Well, Mehdi Hassan, thank you so much for joining us and, and, and giving us some more insight on how to win an argument, how to be a better uh, debater, a better um, arguer. Thank you for more, so much for what you do. Appreciate it. Great conversation. Thank you both. Thank you. Thanks so much. Well, that was a fun episode. Um, Jill, there are so many things to talk about this week. I mean, this is going to be a really interesting week. But today, as we're recording, we are hours away from the Wisconsin Supreme Court election, as well as another really important election in the state of Wisconsin. I know your um, goddaughter lives there. So do you want to talk to us about that election before we get into the broader Supreme Court election? Sure. Uh, and I want to encourage everyone in Whitefish Bay, Wisconsin, well, everyone in Wisconsin, period, <laughs> everyone, uh, to get out and vote in the Supreme Court race. But also, um, there is a race to fill a now vacant position that used to be Shorewood, but has gotten redistricted to Whitefish Bay. And I'm not sure I'm going to say these names correctly, so I'm going to say and spell them. But Habush Sinikin, S-I-N-Y-K-I-N, is the Democrat running in that district. And Dan Canoodle, K-N-O-D-L, is the Republican. And if Canoodle wins, that would give a veto-proof majority in the legislature, and they could therefore veto, uh, uh, overturn any veto by Governor Evers. So that's an important and race. What's, e what's even more terrifying is I was reading an article on Fox uh, that said that th it would basically allow the state legislature to impeach Democratic Governor Tony Evers and other office holders, um, which is, you know, and, and we both know that if, if that happens, they they probably will do it because they're shameless. So um, that's that's also a terrifying reality. So if you're in, you said the which area with the Whitefish? What, Whitefish Bay, Wisconsin. Whitefish Bay, Wisconsin. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's that's important. So get out and vote. The, the Supreme Court is a crucial election as well, because if that if the Republican is elected, it will be the end of abortion in Wisconsin. Yeah. So please, I, everyone, get out. Illinois still welcomes you, but I think it should be in your own state. Yes, yes. So and go out and vote in the Wisconsin Supreme Court election. But there are also 
lots of other state and local elections happening across the country. Yeah. So if you're in Chicago, for instance, you have the mayoral election. Um, I know where I'm originally from, Buffalo Grove, Illinois, has a school board election. Check out your elections. Um, go out there and vote for these local elections because they really, really matter. Um, and they're uh, just as if not even more important than those right. federal and national level ones. So go out there and vote today because it's- And alder persons are being elected as alder, well yeah. in Chicago yes. and in Evanston and school board absolutely important. We've seen banning books. Um, that'll never happen in Evanston, no matter who wins, I think, but <laughs> it's still very important to go out and vote. Absolutely. Um, so let, let's talk about the, uh, let's, let's talk more about the Trump indictment, because I know we've talked a lot about this on, on this show about Richard Nixon and, and how you advocated for Richard Nixon to be indicted. I'm wondering, there's so much about like how we can think of this, but in terms of how we, you want this to be remembered in American history and also young people growing up right now, what do you think should be the message that we take away from what's happening right now with the former president? Well, first of all, let me say that as of the moment that we are recording this, we do not have a copy of the indictment. Yeah. So we don't know exactly what the charges are. And I don't like speculating and guessing and predicting something that I have no way of knowing. Um, although I will say that having read some recent tweets by Stormy Daniels, <laughs> yes. I would say she's a pretty effective communicator under yep. Mehdi yep. Hassan's um, standards, for sure. Uh, everybody should look up her tweets. They're quite, quite humorous. In terms of what we should remember is that no one is above the law, that we are a country that is under the rule of law, and we must stay that way. And I think that where I come from in Watergate, the facts were very, very clear. The evidence was overwhelming of the former president's guilt, and therefore he should have been indicted. I think it's important to hold people accountable for their conduct and to prevent future people uh, from doing similar things. The only way to stop the future is to show them that there is accountability. Maybe Donald Trump, he is unique, so I can't say for sure, but maybe even Donald Trump would have been stopped in his tracks from doing the things that he's accused of doing if he had known that he might be held accountable. So that's where I am on this. And I, I think it's really important that the case go forward, that it be presented in a courtroom with the kind of evidence that anyone can see and evaluate. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for any young person right now, our, our faith in the legal system is at an all-time low. I mean, you just look at what the Supreme Court is doing. But I think this is important, just showing that the rule of law, like you said, still is intact. It still exists and that former presidents can even be held accountable. Um, it's uh, like Mehdi Hassan said, it's long overdue, but we're starting to see it happening now. So um, fingers crossed that we can. And like you said, always, Jill, I mean, this is only one of many, many investigations into Trump. There's new reporting now from the Washington Post that says Jack Smith and his team has new evidence that suggests a possible obstruction um, yes. of justice in the Mar-a-Lago investigation. So there's a lot. Well, that, it, it, they've already had evidence of obstruction. They've gotten new and compelling evidence. Yeah. So yeah. it's building on the obstruction. I, I, I mean, obviously, yeah. obstruction is important. The document case is important just because he has and kept many classified, highly classified documents. The insurrection is important. The interference yeah. in the election which is being investigated in Georgia, but could be investigated anywhere in the country because he tried in right. many states. Um, so 
these are all important to the future of our democracy. And we shouldn't be weighing, is this more important than the other? Because they're yeah, all yeah. important. If you do a crime, you have to be held accountable for that crime. And if you do 10 crimes, it doesn't mean, oh, you just pick the one that you like the best. No, all 10 are guilts. And you right. should be held accountable for all 10. For everyone, right. Because yes. the moment you don't, you say that someone is above the rule of law and right. no one is above the rule of law in America, or at least that's the, that's the whole thing that makes America unique. And I think Mehdi Hassan made excellent points today in talking about it's not that he's being held to a different standard. He is getting away with it if he isn't held to this standard. Yes, And I think exactly. he made that point very, very clearly and very, very well. So... Um, well, let's end on. You know, I actually want to. Um, we haven't really talked about this on, on our show, but we've interviewed so many people, and we, we, you know, we talk about politics a lot, and and who the rising stars of the party are, and maybe let's just wrap by talking about maybe some of our. Uh, favorite communicators in the Democratic Party mm. or in politics in general. I mean, you, it doesn't happen dead or alive. Um, uh, I can think of a few that we've had on this show, but also generally, I love Mallory McMorrow. I think she's a rising star. Yeah. What she's able to do on the local level and state level to raise awareness about so many important issues. She just has this way of speaking authentically to people. Um, and like Mehdi Hassan, I think AOC is one of the most talented um, orators. So is Akeem Jeffries. I love um, his speech. Akeem is uh, wonderful. When he, when he became the minority leader uh, up at the dais uh, that, that night, late in the night, um, it was so amazing to see him speak. And 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 he, I think it was, I mean, it kind of felt like Lin-Manuel Miranda wrote it or something. I mean, it was so good. Um, so those are those I are would have to add, I'd have to years. add, well, and I agree with all the ones that were mentioned by many, but I would have to add Katie Porter to that. Yes, she's yes. a very effective communicator, uh, and her whiteboards are just really, they get the point across. Uh, but I Blunt, you know, like Mehdi Hassan said. What? Blunt, like Mehdi Hassan yes, said. Yeah, I mean, wonderful. I mean, there are a number of really good orators, and, and you know, you can go back to people like... Um, Churchill. I mean, I'm not yes, going yes. back to 428 BC, but uh, <laughs> you know that. And and then you think of lines like, "You sir, have you no decency?" In the Army yeah. McCarthy hearings, is one of those lines that you will never forget. It's the zinger. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, there there are a lot of really good people who are based on fact. And that, to me, yeah. is important. Um, you know, Rachel Maddow is a very good yes, communicator. Yes. Um, she she does a great job. Um, so many, of course, almost every host on MSNBC, I think, is yeah. a great communicator. They all yes, really yes. Uh, make their points and ask questions based on facts. They have the receipts. So it's excellent. Yes, absolutely. Well, this was such a fun episode with Mehdi Hassan. He always um, comes with, you know, with, with the spice. Um, and I hope you read his book, How to Win Every Argument. Um, he's been selling a lot of copies. I hope you get a chance to pick it up and uh, maybe give it to your uh, children. Uh, actually, maybe not. I mean, your children might beat you at an argument if you get it to, give it to your children. But uh, <laughs> give, give it to anyone who, who you think would benefit from this. Read it yourself. Um, and, and I hope you enjoyed the book. And we thank you for watching or listening to this episode of iGen Politics. We'll be back next week. Um, and we have an exciting guest next week, um, Tom Friedman, who will join us to talk about um, his pieces in the New York Times, as well as what's happening in Israel right now, which I think isn't getting the attention it deserves. So join us next week. We'll keep you posted on the timing, um, but we thank you nonetheless for watching and listening, and we will see you next week.